All right. Um, well, uh, we are in um, looking at, at uh, what what view of the last times now have we been looking at? Dispensational premillennialism. Correct. Dispensational premillennialism. Uh, and so uh, we've been looking at uh, some of the definition uh, of that and uh, to remind us and, and, you know, to some of you who have been in uh, this, um, some of this was a shock to you because maybe you don't, you know, in, in those churches, maybe this isn't uh, uh, put out there all the time, uh, the exactness of it. Um but this is uh, this is what's uh, what's there for us, and let's just run through these run through these bullets here. Uh, Jim, would you read this first long one for us? Jesus came the first time, Bethlehem, Joseph, and Mary, to offer to be a political king of a political kingdom, reigning from Jerusalem, and the Jews rejected him. Instead, sending him to the cross. Thus, he went uh, with an unforeseen plan B and created the church as a spiritual. We are currently in the church age, which is seen usually as a parenthesis between God's Old Testament promises to the Jews and his fulfillment of those promises, which now, because of Jewish rejection of Jesus in his first coming, will not happen until the millennium, which is still future. Okay. Um, so we talked about this last week and the idea that Jesus comes to be the new David and to reign on a throne in Jerusalem. And he offers to the Jews sincerely and to do it um, the uh, opportunity to have him as their king and to reign over them and to have the um, glory days of David and Solomon to come back. And even in a greater sense than during their days, because they were uh, sinful, um, but they reject him. And so offer now here in all of this Arminianism. They hear in all of this that there's no elect, right? Uh, and, and so um, God doesn't know, you know, or, or he, he, uh, um, I wouldn't say that. He, he got thwarted. He, yeah, he got thwarted. His will got thwarted, which is against what the scriptures say. You know, you look in, you know, the Psalms, no one can stop God's plans. No one can thwart the plans of God. Um, God does, the words of the psalm, psalmist, whatever he pleases. Um, and. Uh, he even works through the, the sinfulness of men to accomplish his will for the good of his people. Like Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh, yeah. And, and so, um, or Nebuchadnezzar. Um, or, um, I, I feel like uh, feel like Pigpen there. Some, or Nebuchadnezzar. Or the soil of some great... You know, um, <laughs> I always have to appreciate Charles Schultz putting in that that uh, Bible stuff in there, right? Um, who says Nebuchadnezzar? You know. Um, he says, so afraid. And so afraid, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> um, but now what? Now I'm just thinking of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. What were we talking about? Um, so yeah, so he uses Nebuchadnezzar. As, as his instrument of judgment upon his people. Um, he uses Cyrus and calls him, guess what? His Messiah, his anointed one, Cyrus, naming him by name in Isaiah. Cyrus, my anointed one. He's saying, Cyrus, my Messiah. 
And so I was just thinking about this. You know, sometimes I get in a little tizzy when I'm preparing stuff. So maybe it's Thursday, maybe it's went Friday, or I was working on some stuff yesterday too. And just I'm so tired of people saying the Messiah because it creates this impression that the anointed one is a different office than what the Old Testament offers. Okay, so the Messiahs in the Old Testament were whom? Kings and the prophets and the priests. These were the three anointed offices, and they are all called in the Old Testament the Messiah with that word. That's the Hebrew word, the Messiah. Um, and Cyrus is named my Messiah because Cyrus was the one God anointed to return his people. He was the Persian king who came in with the writing on the wall. He comes in that night and he, he conquers the Babylonian kingdom. And his policy is he sends exiles back to their homelands. And, and so God does that. He uses Cyrus to bring his people back, just like he said he would. You know, I'll, I'll bring you back and it'll be so fast you don't know it, won't know it happened to you. So there was no rumbling. There were no rumblings in Babylon. We're going to get back any day, okay, which is a good picture of the second coming, right? Also, no rumblings, no signs that they were going to. You know, it's like that night, in Daniel's and um, uh, Belshazzar's um, uh, uh, party and reading on that, writing on the wall. And it's that night Babylon comes in and takes over and Darius comes in and, and then releases the Jews to head back to, you know, and it's boom. And that's what the prophets had predicted, that the exile will be over. Your return will be over fast before before you know what's going on. And, you, you know, just all of a sudden you're free and you're heading home. Um, but um, so um, so do me a favor. Warm my heart. Don't call Jesus the Messiah. Um, now, it's 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 correct. Um, he is the final one um, serving in the office of prophet, priest and king. But when we say here's my concern, when we say the Messiah has come. Um, we present a picture that this is something different. This is a replacement of the Old Testament system. So you take the Old Testament and you throw it in the trash and you replace it with Jesus, who's the Messiah. But that's not the teaching of the Old Testament and that's not the teaching of the New Testament either. The fact that Jesus is the anointed one and why that's good news is because the people are blessed through a righteous king. And that's Davidic covenant. That's anointed king, son of David. Um, you are blessed because you have an anointed high priest who, who ha performs the day of atonement for you and your sins are forgiven. You're blessed because you have a prophet teaching you the law of Moses so you know how to live. This is the blessing of the messiahs in the Old Testament, the Hebrew anointed ones in the Old Testament. And, and so Jesus comes and, and um, the, we understand, you know, when they asked in the Gospels, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? They all knew what they were talking about. They were connecting that with the Old Testament. They weren't saying, as a 21st century ear hears today, oh, good, God promised a new system in which a single person would come and he would be, you know, God's son, and he would save us from our sins by dying on the cross. 
They were not thinking that like the Samaritan woman. But they were thinking, we will be led and protected, king. Um, our sins will be forgiven because what does the king, what does the faithful king do in regard to the temple and the priests in the Old Testament? Keeps them. keeps them in line, keeps them open, keeps them refurbished, makes sure they have all the money they need to make the repairs in the temple and that everything's just functioning there. And, and so the, the king was in charge of having the priests and the Levites serve like they should serve and not board up the temple and, and do the sacrifices in an incorrect kind of way. Um, and then the prophet in the Old Testament was the one when the priests and especially the king was not faithful, God would raise up a prophet. That was, okay, hermeneutics class people, that was the occasion for him raising up a prophet. That there was, there was a, an unfaithful king who was not following the laws of God, and therefore the people were not following the laws of God because that was the role of the king to lead the people in faithfulness to God. Um, and so the prophet would go primarily to the king and proclaim the law of Moses and essentially say to him, you see Assyria, you see Egypt, you see Babylon knocking on our door and coming into our town and they're defeating our cities and burning our towns. You know why this is happening, don't you? It's because... Here are your violations to the law of Moses. And here's the list of covenant curses and promises in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. And see what we're experiencing now. That's covenant curse. And God told us covenant curse would happen when, um, when we were unfaithful like this. And he also told us that if we would repent... Right? Jeremiah 18. If any nation has curses proclaimed on them and they turn from their wicked ways and turn to the Lord, what would God do? He would relent. He would not bring those curses that he had proclaimed. Okay? And so, um, is Jesus Messiah? Yes, he is. Is he the final, ultimate, perfect Messiah for all three offices? Yes. But let's define Messiah the way the Old Testament clearly defines Messiah. It's those who are doing God's work for the benefit of his people, namely through prophets, priests, and kings. Okay? The Messiah is not a new order. Because the messi you know, I, the other term I hate hearing is the messianic kingdom. David's kingdom was the messianic kingdom. Why? He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. Seeing that the issue, really what we're doing and what we've done in the church for a while is we've defined the English word Messiah outside of its context and meaning of anointed one. And because we've got that translational difficulty, because we don't speak Hebrew, we then take Messiah and anointed one to be different things. And we disconnect the kingship of David with Jesus, even though Jesus in the Gospels is called the son of David. Yeah. And we're to pick up on those things, um, but we don't. I even hear seminary lectures. I was just listening to one yesterday, you know, where they talk about the messianic kingdom, you know, and it's like, dudes, 
<laughs> but this is because seminary professors get their PhDs when they're in their 20s. They haven't had enough time to study the Old Testament. And when you're in PhD work, like my good friend Kelly Capic, you are in seminary and you, you focus all your effort, and Kelly's good on this, um, but you focus all your effort on in your MDiv, which is three years after college, as the pastor degree, you focus your, your elective efforts on what you're going to do your PhD work on. But he focused all his elective stuff on that so he'd already have this background. But when you're doing that, you're not, you don't have the benefit of Old Testament study. And so if you're, not Kelly's work wasn't in New Testament, but somebody going into a PhD in New Testament, they're not studying the Old Testament because they're 26 years old and they don't have the Old Testament background that Peter, the dumb fisherman, understood and had. Right? All the, all the dumb Jews during Jesus' day, the dumbest of the Jews understood the Old Testament better than we do as devoted Christians when we're 34. Okay? They've lived it. Um, and, and so if you're just studying the New Testament, you hear things like kingdom, you hear things like Messiah, and you just go into default mode which is how the world has defined those things. And you don't define them in regard to the way the Old Testament defines those very terms. It's not a logical leap. It's just understood, you know, that could he be the Christ? That's not explained what the Christ is in the, in the New Testament. And whenever that happens, some ter term, some phrase, some idea in the New Testament where you say, that's kind of vague, tongues of fire on their head, that's kind of vague. Then you say, bing, red flag. Whenever you say, that's kind of vague in the New Testament, that should be a red flag, like that, spring-loaded, that go up on both sides of your head that say, this must be defined in the Old Testament. Because if this were new here, we would have an extensive definition of it here. And this is why Jesus, like we've talked about a lot, shows up and from the get-go walks out of the 40 days in the wilderness and says, here's the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. No explanation. Why? Because the kingdom of God had been up and running since 1050, 1030 BC through to 586 BC. And Jews had been longing for its return up to the time of the New Testament when Jesus was talking about this. They knew what he meant when he said the kingdom of God was at hand. He, he was the new David. Or somebody was. The Jewish ear heard as Jesus said this. The kingdom of God is at hand. They meant David. They meant a king reigning in Jerusalem. They meant the temple functioning as it should and foreigners being out of the land and um, freedom uh, for God's people from the Euphrates River down to Egypt, the promised land. That's what they heard. Um, and, and so that's how they define kingdom. That's how they define Messiah. That's how they, deter that's how they defined um, uh, all of the you know, various things, Jesus Christ, Messiah, those kind of things, kingdom of God, uh, when, they heard those, when they heard those things. Okay. Um, so... Um, Jesus comes and he offers this, that's dispensationalism. He offers this, and instead of them seeing that Jesus' Jerusalem 
was the heavenly Jerusalem that he would ascend to as king, okay, ascension to the throne as a king. Um, and instead of seeing that he was this great high priest who was going to offer one sacrifice once for all time um, on the cross, and instead of seeing that that sacrifice would be his own body, Hebrews 8, a body you have given to me. You know, bulls and goats, you, you know, you do not want for me, Jesus says to the Father. What you want, what you have given me to offer as a sacrifice is a body. A body you have given to me. So I say, Jesus says, I've come to do your will, O God. And so Jesus goes to the cross, offers as priest the sacrifice of his own body, and acts as high priest and sacrifice and then he spends the time during his incarnation between uh, uh, the wilderness temptation and his cross being the prophet, teaching us the law of God. So he fulfills all these things, all these offices. Once John the Baptist anoints him, Messiahs him, Christs him there at the baptism. Does that make sense? Um, and so one of the reasons, one of the things that the uh, dispensational premillennialism gets at gets us to in a good way is the reason for the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Because dispensationalists with this view viewed Jesus' intent in coming the way the Jews during Jesus' day viewed his intent. What Jerusalem did they think he had come to reign in? Yeah. Jerusalem below. Yeah. What throne? The Jerusalem below. What... what uh, what was he going to do with the Romans? Kick them out. Kick them out. Not, receive, not, not heal their sons. Uh, like, like he did in the incarnation. These things you know, were signs that he wasn't the Messiah if you're going from this Jewish point of view that um, what Jesus is going to do is be a, a merely human king and kick out the Romans so that we can live in peace here in the promised land. Okay. No, it's understandable that they view this. You can't look at the Old Testament. We can look at it, having read the New Testament, we can look at the Old Testament and say, ah, I see it. This is going to be in a greater fulfillment, a greater way. This is a greater throne. This is, um, this is our king reigning next to the heavenly tabernacle, which the Old Testament did tell us about, right? Moses put this tabernacle together exactly as I've told you because I've given you a pattern of the tabernacle in heaven. So that's why you need to get it right here on earth when you do it with canvas and wood and gold. Um, but but this stuff, you know, we, we can understand the Jewish point of view and this is why the disciples are so confused. They're convinced Jesus is this um, anointed king. They know he's the son of David. They don't get the stuff about him being a priest. They do get the stuff, as the Jews do, about him being a prophet because he's teaching. Everyone agrees his teaching is amazing and beyond what the, the prophets and or beyond what the um, scribes and Pharisees are teaching. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. Um, so they get prophet. They don't know priests. That's kind of hidden. And 1 Corinthians 1 talks about that. Satan doesn't get that. 
Satan drives Jesus to the cross because he doesn't know it's the salvation of all God's people. Um, so that's 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, but, um, but they're confused. If Jesus, you're our anointed king, then you shouldn't die. Right? Peter rebukes Jesus. Says, well, then don't go to Jerusalem. <laughs> if this is what's going to happen to you there. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because at that point, Satan is touting the plan, you know, of, of Satan to keep Jesus from making atonement for the people. Um, and, and so um, the disciples need the Holy Spirit and they need Acts 1, verses 2 and 3. They need Jesus to teach them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. That's what Acts 1, 2, and 3 say. Jesus was with his disciples after his resurrection for 40 days, teaching them, quote, about the kingdom of God. Because that was hard to get, that he was going to be a king reigning from heaven over Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Acts 1, verse 8. Okay. That was hard to get. In fact, the disciples don't get it. They stay in Jerusalem. So then Stephen gets persecuted and killed in Acts 7. And so they get the gospel to Samaria, Acts 8. And then they still don't kind of get it. And then finally, Acts 10, they get it to the Gentiles. Okay, So it's a hard thing to understand. But that's what, in dispensational premillennialism, that's, that's the view that Jesus actually came to do what the Jews expected him to do as son of David. To take the throne in Jerusalem, kind of like the zealots wanted, to take the throne in Jerusalem, to kick the Romans out, and recreate on earth a Jewish kingdom where all the um, promises of restoration that the Old Testament prophets had given, you know, that you'll, the land will be fruitful again, you'll have a son of David reigning over you, the nations will stream to Jerusalem, like the Queen of Sheba had done in Solomon's day. They'll come and, and, and nations will give their tribute to our God. That's the promise of restoration in the Old Testament. Okay? After the exile, this is going to happen. Um, and so um, dispensational premillennialism sees it like this. Jesus was giving a sincere offer of a Jewish kingdom with him, him reigning as the son of David over them. Okay. Uh, but what we see is that the Jews actually had this view that it was this kind of kingdom, this kind of king, uh, and they see Jesus is not interested. And so he's rejected as king. You know, he's a friend of the Romans and the tax gatherers and the sinners. You know, that's not a righteous kingdom of a righteous son of David. Um, these kind of people are stoned by us. Um, so that's so what they do to solve this is they say, well, God doesn't give promises that he doesn't fulfill. Okay, and so they they don't understand what that we talk about here. Yes, way to go. Interhistorical contingencies. Uh, Jeremiah 18. Uh, if God proclaims curse and people turn to him, he doesn't bring the curse. If he proclaims blessing and they turn to other gods, he doesn't bring the blessing. 
because there are um, uh, um, uh, built-in um, uh, promises or built-in uh, conditionalities in promises. Um, just, just like you say, you know, conditional promises to your kids and to other people all the time. You know, you say, okay, see you at eight. Well, that, that has the condition if my car doesn't break down. But we understand that. When someone doesn't show up at eight, we say, oh, something must have happened. Um, and, and you say, I'm sorry, my car broke down. And we don't say, you promise breaker, you lied to me. Right? Because we understand the conditionality of promises. Okay? Um, and, and so this, this is the case, um, that, you know, with, uh, dispensational people, they don't understand the conditionality of, uh, and the mollification, the adjustability of promises that God makes in the Old Testament. And so these promises get, um, uh, fulfilled in Jesus in a different way. Um, but they're rightly saying God doesn't lie, dispensationalists, and God doesn't lie. Right. They're right. Um, and so what they do is they create Jesus comes again and he creates. A, he serves as king on earth to Jews. For a thousand years, fulfilling literally exactly in the same way as in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prof, prophecies uh, about restoration. So temples rebuilt, sacrifices are offered again. Um, the area of the promised land is Jewish only, unless a Gentile comes in and gives allegiance to the God of Israel. And, you know, if he's a man, gets circumcised and, you know, all that. He's now a, a Jew. He's a proselyte. Okay. So that's their deal. And so they, they, Jesus sees the Jews aren't accepting me. And so he goes to plan B or what they, they call, they say it's a parenthesis, which is the church age. And the church age is Jesus being a king spiritually from heaven. All the stuff we say spiritually from heaven over a largely Gentile church. Jews are welcome, but largely Gentile church until he comes back again pre-millennium or at the beginning of the millennium to fulfill his promises that he wasn't able to fulfill the first time it came to the Jews. What's that? Wasn't able. Yeah, wasn't wasn't able. In quotes. Yeah, Matthew. So it seems like this approach makes him very much dependent on things outside of his control. Yes. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So enter the Arminianism. Yeah. That that men are in control of their own salvation. Men are in control of whether Jesus accomplishes his purposes when he comes to the earth. It's hard to be dispensational premillennialism, premillennial if you believe in election and the decree of God, because pretty soon you see those dots don't match up. You can't connect those dots. And so you're in crisis and you got to do something. You either got to give up your election or you got to give up your um, dispensational premillennialism. Well, and, and maybe I'm asking a question that's unanswerable because yeah. it's just wrong. Yeah. But like, <clears throat> who determines then how many people need to be saved? Yeah. And you know, like, and when when is that threshold reached? And is it a you know? Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, is Jesus in this view essentially, you know, 
I can't wait to get back, but I need, you know, some guy named so and so in the future, but he decided not to, so I guess I'm stuck here in limbo for, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and so if that is the case, who made the rules? Or is it just, it's a, just so it's un, it's unanswerable because you know it, it's it's the question is asking to defend a position that you can't defend um, logically, philosophically, or biblically. Yeah. So I guess then my next question is, how has this idea survived when it falls apart when you attempt to resolve the issues? So uh, <laughs> some of you know Richard Pratt, he'd say, live your life as if Jesus is coming back 10,000 years from now, not like he's coming back next week. If he's coming back next week, you'll be unfaithful. You'll quit doing the things you should do for the long term. You'll quit training your kids in the scriptures if Jesus is coming back next week. Uh, and so, but the same, if Jesus tarries 10,000 years, I, I think dispensational premillennialism will die. It, it will be, you know, give it. I'll, I'll say 60 years. So, you know, anyone who's young here, like Teresa, um, 60 years from now, um, uh, uh, you know, so maybe Blake, he'll be 70, right? Um, it'll be dead because it's already died significantly. 30% of it's gone uh, already. And, and evidence that you who have come from, you know, and shout out to Steve, who's down in or is in Tennessee or Florida now, um, uh, that, that, you know, come from very dispensational backgrounds. You didn't know some of the stuff in this first paragraph, which if you pick up any book on dispensational um, doctrine and look to the last chapter on end times, it's, this is all just there. It's from there. Um, and so that's evidence that the less biblically defendable parts of this have already faded even if no one within the system has said, we used to believe that, but we don't believe that anymore. They've kind of just quietly dropped it. And, and I'm not saying they're wicked or anything like that. That's kind of how our insecure, sin nature, human being, you know, things function. When we have gotten something wrong, we don't admit it. We just move on. <laughs> I, I guess I, I forget that it, even if it lasts another 50 years, it's still only going to be 200 years old, which puts it at approximately 10% of Christianity yeah. in all of history, which yeah. makes it a blip, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so that's why, you know, on, on, the, uh, on another scale within dispensationalism, there are very few dispensational seminaries now that are still classic dispensational, early 20th century dispensational seminaries. They're almost all progressive dispensational seminaries. Even Dallas who was the uh, uh, profligator, is that right? Profligator of dispensationalism. Why it's so popular today in the United States is because of Dallas Seminary. They were so, and they, they've pumped out pastors into Baptists and Bible churches. If there's a Bible church, likely the pastor came from Dallas Seminary. Um, they, uh, they are progressive dispensationalists now um, and have been for 20, 30 years. And that's just where they're saying there's not this classic dispensationalism says that until Jesus comes, um, Jews were being saved by their obedience to the law of Moses. Okay, so salvation by works apart from Jesus. That is classic dispensationalism. 
Hardly anybody believes that in dispensationalism today, and good and good for them, all right? Because they've seen no that denigrates Jesus, and and, and no we see in Scripture that that Jesus sins on the cross cover Abraham, or sorry, Jesus taking sins upon himself on the cross and his atonement there covers Abraham and covers Moses and covers David, um, that, that Jesus bore their sins and his body on the cross also. That's what progressive dispensationalism says, and they're right. And that's what the Reformation and you know the early church said as well, that Jesus' sins covered Old Testament Old Testament saints. So here's the picture of dispensational uh, premillennialism. Jesus comes down. Here's the inauguration of the kingdom or his incarnation. Um, and he offers the kingdom um, to them. Um, and it's a kingdom that is not the kingdom we know today as church people, but it's a kingdom to the Jews uh, in Jerusalem, in the promised land. Um, and they reject it and they put him on a cross instead. And so he goes up to heaven and goes with the uh, parentheses, which is the church where he reigns from heaven as king over church. But he will come back again pre-millennium. He'll start the millennium, thousand years where he reigns over the Jews on earth. And then um, finally um, here will be... Um, final judgment and if they believe in a, a new heavens and new earth um, there we'll go on on from here so it's not a millennial kingdom forever it's a thousand year kingdom over the Jews and so during this time um, uh, Christians are Christians are in their souls are in heaven uh, Jews um, they're uh, living here um, on the earth and into eternity this is very dispensational uh, one of the dispensational books that you can get right now about dispensationalism makes this point very well one of the key things of dispensationalism is getting the idea that there are two peoples of God there's the Jewish people of Old Testament people of God and those who will be during this thousand years and then there's the church and they will remain this two peoples of God for eternity. Okay. Um, like yeah, and they'll get along, but they'll be, you know, like Britain and England, or sorry, Britain and the United States. You know, we'll get along um, uh, and, until, um, but but we'll be two distinct peoples. There'll be just this distinction. And this is, you, you can't live with this um, and, and read the book of Acts. Because Paul's not teaching that to Jews. He's teaching, if you want to be a faithful Jew, here's the good news. The, Jesus has come, and he has fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament prophets in this way. Uh, and, and so then he emphasizes that in Romans 11. And he says, and if you don't believe that, you cut yourself off of the tree, off of the kingdom of God of the Old Testament. Yeah, and again, kingdom of God is not a New Testament idea. Okay, that, that was something central. That was the high point of the Old Testament, the kingdom of God under day under sons of David. Yeah, Allison. Oh, I just said in the whole book of Hebrews. Yeah, the whole book of Hebrews. 
um, there. And so you see, you know, Paul arguing, I mean, a quick place to always look at it is Acts 28 when, uh, you know, Paul's there under house arrest. It's the end of Acts. He's there under house arrest in Rome for two years and he calls the Jews in Rome to him. And he teaches them about the kingdom of God. And he says, this is what this, what I'm teaching you is what the prophets declared to us. And that's why I'm in chains. That's why I'm in prison because I preached this to the Jews in Jerusalem and all over. And where I've preached this, some have believed, but many have rejected this. And they, in rejecting this, and Paul makes this point in several Jewish synagogues through the book of Acts, in rejecting this, they've, uh, they've rejected uh, God himself and God's plan and the, the Old Testament prophets they've rejected. Because um, this, this is not a new thing. This is the fulfillment of our hopes. And that's his language. It's, a, it's our hopes. The hope we've waited for has come in Jesus and he's reigning in, in heaven. This is what Peter is convincing the Jews gathered at Pentecost in Acts 2 of. That Jesus came, he was the son of David, and while David said, you will not leave my body to decay, and meant, I won't die in battle, temporarily, my body won't be left to decay out on the battlefield, but I'll survive this. With the final son of David, with Jesus, it means he resurrected on the third day, and he's living right now, and he's living bodily right now, and his body is not decaying. He convinces them that Jesus is the son of David, that he's the king, and that salvation, like it was in the Old Testament, your well-being was dependent on having a faithful king. And so Peter convinces them. He quotes uh, uh, Joel uh, there in, in, the, um, in Acts 2, um, uh, that, that uh, uh, Jesus is this fulfillment um, of the Old Testament prophets. Okay. Um, yeah, well, like good. Your hands up. I've, se I've seen. I've seen your questioning in your mind of dispensational like premillennialism all this time, and yeah. I feel like you've answered it. But yeah. okay, the thousand years where where Jesus is reigning over the Jews. Mm -hmm. Where are the Christians at that point? Up here. All now you've just heard. There's been some. You you heard last week. There's been some bending of that because. You know, that Jeff, you know, told us last week that, that some, some dispensationalists think, you know, that the Christians bodily are raised up during the millennium. So there's a lot of variance okay. there. Uh, but the, but the standard thing is that, that, uh, believers are, you know, their souls are here okay. and that this is a, a, a reign over Jews. It's Jesus fulfilling his promise to Jews. There his, his, um, you know, his other family who lives in Phoenix during his business trips. <laughs> yeah, Bill. So I guess the big question is, is, is God done with the Jews? Revelation seems to say he's going to save 12,000 from all 12 tribes. There's going to be 144,000. He's got some big plan for the Jews. I think that's what dispensational premillennialism stands on, that they're Kind of what you just said. Yeah, they two see that passage and they say, yeah. Yeah, two they, peoples of God, there's a parallel plan yeah. for the Jews. And that's why Christians today in the U.S. are so pro-Israel. Right. Christians make organizations called the Israel, the Jewish Christian 
audience yeah. or stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, right. Yeah, we all we have a soft spot in our hearts for yeah. the Jews because that's our foundation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so what we do, what we always do in our interpret in our interpreting, which we take from our interpretive rules, come from the New Testament itself, from the Old Testament where it speaks about the Old Testament, from the New Testament where it speaks about the Old. And we say, what's that? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, it calls, so how, in it won't, for our age, in the New Testament, whenever we come across something um, in Scripture, we say, has this changed with Jesus or is it exactly the same? And we have an answer for that. We're not left to ponder it and just say in our head, well, I think, well, I've always heard, right? We say, does the New Testament say something? And the New Testament calls the church the Israel of God. Paul, Galatians 6. Uh, Paul um, Romans four, not all Israel is Israel. Only Israel who's believed is Israel. And he's talking about faith in Jesus. And he says, Jews who have believed continue to be Israel. And that's his point in, in, uh, um, uh, Romans 11. Jews who have continued to believe, they continue to be Israel, continue to be in the tree. And so we don't say, so there's, um, physical geopolitical Israel today, which is the group that's uh, at war with Hamas right now. But then there's theological Israel today, which is the church, and it's not people with Jewish descent. The only Israel today, theologically, are those who believe in Jesus, whether they are Jewish DNA or Gentile DNA. Yeah. And so does God have any plans for the Jews he has plans for elect people from within the Jews who will come to faith in Jesus, just like he has plans for Gentiles who are elect. He has plans for them to come to faith in Jesus. But there's no plan for him, and you know, Paul's pretty clear about that in Romans 11. There's no plan for them um, as, as, a, um, as a group um, that uh, he's coming back to them. His, his appeal to them was in Jesus. And then his grand appeal to them continued in the first century when Paul and the apostles went to synagogues first. And they said, believe the Bible, is what they said when they went into the synagogues, which was the Old Testament. And they proved from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Um, so so that's, that's it there. And so when you get to Revelation 7 and you see the, the, um, the you know, 12,000, 12, you know, from each tribe there, 12 times 12,000, 144,000, and then immediately after that, the great multitude. You can go two ways with that in light of what we have clear in Scripture, right? We always interpret the unclear from the clear. Um, the clear is that you are God's people if you believe in Jesus. And John, who also wrote Revelation, says in first john he does not have the who he does not have the son he who does not have the son does not have the father either so that's john who wrote revelation making that very clear um so jews who don't have who haven't believed in jesus they don't have the father they think they do but they don't and so john says i want to make this very clear um, pretty offensive 
statement to someone who's yeah. ethnically Jewish. Right. They still feel that they're yeah. God's people and, and the plan focuses on them. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, so so good so good question good question there. Um, that um, uh, there's so we define we believe the New Testament, which says the church is the Israel of God. And so when you get to Revelation seven, you can do uh, one of uh, uh, one of a couple couple of things. You can say either that's the same group as Christians. You can say um, the um, uh, the 144,000. When you look at, at the contours of that, it's believers living on earth getting persecuted. And the great multitude, when you look at the context of that, and when you look what's said about that, you see it is believers in heaven. And you can either then split that and you say, um, this could either be believers in heaven at, in the end, everyone gathered together, or it could be believers in heaven now, their souls. Okay, that's the great multitude and includes Abraham and all those folks. And so you look at those verses and if you're careful to do or careful to look at what's said at the front of those, you know, 144 and the, the great multitude, you see, you see those kind of distinctions being made there, which is very much something that Revelation is doing. It's talking about, on the one hand, the front half of the book talks mainly about Christians on earth and what's going on on earth and what we're seeing and uh, the persecutions, that kind of thing. And then on the other hand, uh, and the latter part of the book is mainly about the parallels that are going on in the spiritual world during this persecution on earth. Okay. Um, so um, let's just read these bullets uh, quickly. Mallory, second bullet. Someday in our future, Jesus will rapture from earth the church and the Old Testament saints bodily to heaven. Okay. And then uh, Betsy. A seven-year tribulation on earth will follow after which Jesus will come to earth and establish a kingdom to the Jews and incidental others, yeah. personally reigning as their king on earth for a thousand years with a rebuilt temple with animal sacrifices, thus fulfilling literally all Old Testament promises to Israel. Yeah. Um, and so you've got here... Um, you've got here this, this seven years. And seven years of, of, you know, what they call the Great Great Tribulation, um, right prior to, and so you have uh, here in dispensational premillennialism, you have what they call the Rapture, which is not a word in the Bible. Um, yeah, the Rapture, where Jesus kind of comes like here, and he, he gathers uh, physically. Um, New Testament believers, uh, they they rise up, and that's left behind. That's the left behind series right there. They gather up, they're raptured, so that they don't have to go through this seven year tribulation. That's most most of those who are in dispensational premillennialism. Most are pre tribulation. Um, some some are some are mid trib, and some are post trib raptures but most in um dispensationalism take this pre-trib view here and you know believe in jesus beforehand and get out of town before the great tribulation comes because it's going to be awful um 
So that's that that's that view there. And then after the tribulation of seven years, you've got then Jesus comes, then Jesus comes again, and that's this line um, to start the thousand years and fulfill his promises to the Jews as he spoke through them and Old Testament prophets. So then during the tribulation, are they saying that people still have a chance to believe in Jesus during that time? Yeah, during during all these periods, um, there can be there can be belief. Yeah. Um, repentance and belief. Yeah. Jim. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, next bullet here, Andrew. After the millennium, the unbelieving dead will be raised bodily and judged. Revelation 20 judgment and the final state will commence. Okay, so that's just, that's this little thing here. Final judgment in New Heavens and New Earth after, after the millennium. Okay. Um, in, in questions about in questions about this, that's the main uh, main doctrines of um, dispensationalism. And like with any view of the last times, you'll have people within that system have differences, you know, here and there. So that's um, so when you're talking with somebody who's dispensational or someone who's not, but you talk about last things, if they've heard anything about it, that's where they are. And so they're in their minds, they're here. And this rapture could occur any day. And so just like we've talked about biblically how Jesus says, when I return, it'll be like, I'll come like a thief in the night. Um, it'll be like the days of Noah. People are marrying, getting married. They're just having daily life. There are no signs that I'm coming. Um, and so just be ready um, because I could come at any time. Just keep watch. Um, and so, you know, we see that, you know, our, our, our viewpoint is, you know, rapture and second coming, that's the same thing. What they what they see is a, a, a rapture. That's just Jesus at the second coming. Um, and that now, you know, for, for us, our... Our millennium is, is this time, you know, between, uh, between his uh, ascension and, and, his, and his return, okay? Um, any other things? Yeah, Teresa. I was just curious, knowing Jewish people, what they think of them. <laughs> I don't think they, I really think they, most Jewish people don't know anything about like Left Behind series or any, or, G, or that Jesus is coming back. I don't think they've really heard that. Um, my experience with uh, Jewish folks is that they are um, trained not to listen to anything Christian. Um, Christians were those who um, killed the Jews in the Holocaust, um, and so um, don't listen to anything Christian. And so, you know, that's what I experienced on, when I was uh, in campus ministry as well. Jewish students, as soon as they found out we were Christian, they, they were polite, but they said, oh, no, thank you. And they'd put down whatever we had handed them or, or whatever. They just, you know, they, and that was something that they had, you know, just culturally you know, you don't, you don't talk about these things with somebody. And so I think they've just kind of tuned out to all this, which is a good thing because when they come to faith, we don't have to work them out of this system.
Because I've never, this is crazy tale. Um, yeah. 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 So this is, you know, don't, I don't recommend going into the Christian bookstore. Um, I really don't because there's just so much crap in there. Um, and by well-meaning people, so I, I shouldn't, you know, they're not crap, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just go, go to the prophecy end time section. It's all this, all this, um, if it's a little bit more academically oriented, you might get an old uh, post mill book um, uh, there by by uh, George Ladd or somebody like that. Um, and then uh, mill people are like, this is silliness and we're not writing books. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, any other questions before we just conclude? Okay. Um, so next, oh, one more thing. So yeah, just we've said that already. There are lots of variances among adherents. So when you're talking to someone dispensational, don't say, well, you believe this. So ask them, so what do you believe about this? And let them you know, express what they believe. And that's just a good technique when you're talking belief with anybody. I was literally gonna say that. <laughs> What's that? I said, and then tell them they're stupid. And I was literally gonna say that. <laughs> Great minds. Um, so next week we'll get on to um, uh, preterism. Uh, our, our last view we'll look at, and then after that we'll, we'll um, kind of summarize and go back to, you know, I, I taught you amillennialism first for months and months and months. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the nice things about amillennialism is, is uh, it's not complicated, it's not hard to learn, and you just, you just say, you know, at the end of it all, you say, why all this? Why, why do you have to do all, why would Jesus have to do all these things? Um, and then in terms of fulfilling promises to the Jews, just read, read, uh, read Acts and read every New Testament epistle. And you will see that they are saying the promise, they're taking Old Testament promises and saying they are fulfilled in Christ in the church. And they're not saying they're fulfilled in a parenthetical kind of way or a temporary way. Um, and you will find nothing in the epistles, you know, about um, Jesus coming to fulfill his uh, promises to those who haven't believed in Jesus. Hopefully that's a very foreign idea in your minds. But realize that the epistles nowhere teach that Jesus is coming back to fulfill his promises to people who didn't believe in him, to Jewish people who rejected him, and that he's coming back to earth to serve in a temple or to serve in a palace in Jerusalem and uh, reign, you know, and, and oversee and supervise the work of a new temple. You don't see that that's completely foreign to everything except misinterpreting visions and images in Revelation. If you pull Revelation from the Bible, you can't get to dispensational premillennialism. Um, the only thing you can come close to is misinterpreting the second coming as the rapture when you get to first, uh, first Thessalonians 4. But when you combine, and, and 1 Corinthians 15. But when you look at what those passages are saying, you see those passages attach things to them that are second coming things. 
that are into the, you know, First Corinthians 15 is where it says, at the last trumpet, with the twinkling of an eye, and then the next verse says, and death will be no more. Death, where's your victory? Or, uh, um, where's your sting? Oh, death, where's your, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, grave, where, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Or grave, where's your sting? See, the death of death occurs with the twinkling of an eye, with the last trumpet. And guess what? The last trumpet is the last trumpet. <laughs> it's not this. It's the last trumpet um, there. And so, um, uh, and also just see how this, how this idea kind of guts in ways. Now, you can get around it. You can get around it. It kind of guts the cross and guts the gospel of its content. It provides a, a salvation kind of outside of receiving Jesus, um, which is um, what John speaks against in John 1, 11 and 12. All right, let's pray.